Well, good morning. So great to see everyone and be here with you, even though we have to talk about suffering. But I, I was thinking today, just coming here and seeing your faces, this is a room full of women who have suffered in faith. And we all get to benefit by your faith and your continual pursuit of God. And I thought, let's raise our hand if, if we've never suffered. Okay, see, we're all in the same place. We all need each other, so thanks for pursuing God, even in the midst of hard times. So it's hard to talk about suffering, but I also get to talk about Jesus. And aren't you glad that Jesus didn't leave us in the dark about suffering? Would that not have been a horrible, scary thing? If he didn't talk about it, if we didn't understand it, if he didn't shed light on it. But not only does he do that, but he lived it. He was a sufferer. He was called the man of sorrows. There are three ways that we can learn about trials and troubles. Jesus teaches us three ways. And here are the different ways. We can learn about suffering by looking at the cross. We can learn about suffering by looking at Jesus' life. We can learn about suffering by listening to his words. And here's the reality. Jesus takes the senselessness out of suffering. Praise God for that. So in the hard times, we can have strength. We can have hope. We can have peace. I wanted us to look at the stained glass. Now, those of you that are sitting out there, don't look at this poor reproduction. Look at the real thing up above you. I want you to look at a minute. This is our stained glass window. We see the cross. It's the symbol of Christianity. And it's also a symbol of suffering. The cross was a place of painful death. But it's easy for us to forget that because we've got the cross on our necklaces and in our earrings and on our Bibles and above our churches. And we can forget that it's a symbol of suffering of Jesus Christ. It should never become mundane to us. It should never be just two intersecting lines. It should remind us of the fact that the cross is all about Jesus taking all my sins and taking all the punishment for those sins. It should never be something that we minimize or forget. Um, I was in high school and got to go with my best friend Nancy to Jekyll Island, Georgia. Have any of you ever been to Jekyll Island, Georgia? That's neat. Okay, off the coast of Georgia, most humid place in the world. Biggest cockroaches in the world. Um, but a beautiful island, and I'd only been a Christian a short time, and I remember going with Nancy and her family to a little church. Now, do any of you remember Charlie Shedd, the author? He was sort of a 70s kind of author, a really a, a great guy. I think his books are still out there. I was totally shocked when we show up at this sort of little ideal church under these palm trees and in the tropical area, thinking this this is the most, I feel like I'm in Hawaii, just flowers were everywhere, this little room, and Charlie Shedd stands up. He's the preacher, and I didn't realize that, and I had read some of his books, so that was pretty exciting. 
So I was having a good time, and then he turned to this young man who was probably just in his 20s, and he said, get up and sing that song for us. And this man stood up with no instruments. He had one of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard, and he started singing this song, Who Killed Jesus? And I can remember sitting there, hanging onto my pew as the words began to, penetra- began to penetrate into my heart what the cross was really all about. And I can remember almost jumping up and saying, I did it! I killed him! Okay, I admit it! I, I was just hanging on the pew, and I'd look at people and they'd be thumbing through their bulletins. <laughs> and I, the words to that song struck my heart. I think it was the first time I began to understand what Jesus suffered for me. We learn about suffering by looking at the cross. But look at it again. It's also a symbol of victory. It's a symbol of glory. Because if you'll notice, Jesus is no longer on it. He has risen from the dead. He endured the suffering for me. And great things came from his suffering. And the designers of this window had that in mind. So I want you to look at the bottom of the cross. That's a tomb that's empty. And if you look along the sides, it's easier to see on that one, but you'll see green leaves coming out from the tomb and making their way up around the uh, sides of that window. And this is representing that out of the cross came life and newness and blessing and growth. The cross is also about Jesus offering us an abundant life through him. And as believers, we should also never forget that. We learn about victory when we look at the cross. So if we step back and look at a little deeper, we'll see some other important lessons. The very first foundational truth about suffering we can learn by looking at the cross. If we don't get this truth, then we will go through life confused, angry, disappointed. And here it is, a Christ follower will experience both suffering and glory. If Jesus has suffered, we will suffer. This is one way that we manifest who Jesus is. If you would go to um, the place where Mother Teresa would toil and labor and suffer herself as she um, met the needs of children dying of AIDS, whose face were they really seeing when they looked into Mother Teresa's face? It was the face of Jesus. When we suffer in this world, we get to manifest who Jesus is. But we hear this phrase a lot, even on television by some well-meaning people. God just wants me to be happy. You know, I think the guy that wrote that was a person that wanted to be happy but didn't necessarily want to know God. And so they decided, God wants me to be happy. And so they began their pursuit of happiness, not their pursuit of God. But instead of pushing away the reality of trials and troubles in our lives, we need to adopt the attitude of the cross, and we don't resent 
We don't refuse the hard thing God allows in our lives. Instead, we choose not to push God away because we've made our own plan. We allow and adopt the attitude of the suffering of the cross. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't want us to have peace and joy. We're going to look at that today. He definitely wants us to have peace and joy. But he's saying sorrows will be a part of this life. One pastor put it this way. I thought this was great. He says, life is a series of problems. Either you're in one now, you're just coming out of one, or you're getting ready to get into another one. The reason for this is that God is more interested in your character than in your comfort. He's more interested in making your life holy than he is in making your life happy. We can be happy here on earth, but that's not the goal of life. The goal is to grow in Christ's likeness. So if we follow Christ, we will see trials. But remember we talked about the two things to remember on the cross? Let's not forget what else we learn. There is glory. There is victory. If Jesus conquered the suffering of the cross by the power of God in his resurrection, we can conquer suffering in our lives today and in the future by the power of God at work in us. This is the hope that sustains us in this life and in the life to come. Look on your verse sheet, 1 Peter 5. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's about victories today. 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Even though we're hard-pressed on every side, we aren't crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Romans 8.18, it talks about our future glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We know that. That's why our trials don't defeat us. We know God had a plan for Jesus in the midst of his suffering. God has a plan for us. We are his children. In his power, we will find victory accepting his better plan in our life. I love that David, who had so many trials in his life, could say these words, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so I will wait for the Lord. Be strong, my heart, and wait for the Lord. I found a letter that a woman had written a friend, and it sounds pretty harsh, but I thought it was such a great picture of the cross. Both the trials in this life, but the future glory and the present victories we have in the power of God. She says this, I'm writing to let you know about four-year-old Zachariah. He now has a growth on his aortic valve, and it's very painful as a mother to watch her son suffer knowing he doesn't understand why. It's not the worst situation, nor is it the best, but in God's great wisdom and love for us, it is his will. 
I humbly submit, knowing his faithfulness reaches to the skies. Through times of pain and surgery and tears, I know that I know that I know he will see us through this. Not barely, not hanging by a thread, but gloriously and peacefully. So I stand in awe of everything he's done in my life. He took me out of a deep, dark pit of incest, prostitution, depression, self-hate, and he set my feet on a solid rock. He put a new song in my heart. I know I'm not great, but I serve a great God. When I think of where he brought me from, I know I am not worthy, but when I am still faithless, he is faithful. The cross brings trials, troubles, and victory and glory. It also teaches us that God brings good things from bad things. Uh, My wonderful daughter married a wonderful man a few months ago. We're praising God for that. There was a beautiful song in the wedding called A Prayer for Home. And I thought about the words in that song a lot. And there were two lines that kind of jumped out at me. And they said this, May the cold wind blow far from their front door. May the winter rains never bring them harm. And I would kind of get this catch in my spirit when I think about those words. Because it's wonderful. We should pray blessings on each other. Um, But I know the rains and the winds are going to come. And that's going to be okay. Because they're going to be better people because of that. So I thought, well, I guess you couldn't really sing the song, When the Cold Winds Blow. When the rain does them harm, may they persevere. We couldn't do that. But that's reality. That's the truth. We don't have to fear those things. God takes those bad things and he brings something good out of them. Can you imagine what the shielded and overprotected child who is now an adult would be like if they always got their way? If they never faced disappointment? if they never knew defeat, if they always got what they wanted, if they never knew rejection or being refused. Can you imagine the Christian like that as well? How would God use that individual? The cross tells us God makes good things come from bad things because Jesus' suffering brought about our salvation. Our suffering on this earth will not be wasted if we turn to God in it. In fact, I would even say sometimes our suffering will also bring about the salvation of other people around us. If we turn to God, our suffering won't be wasted. Look on your verse sheet, Romans 8:28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Uh, we don't have time to discuss what all the good things could be. If you read the Word of God, you'll see what they are. Read the first chapter of James and you'll see a lot of wonderful things that will come from troubles in our lives. But we're looking at Jesus' life today, so I want to look at him on the cross and realize three things that we can learn. Look at Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Persevering through suffering grows the fruit of humility, servanthood, and obedience. We see that when we see Jesus on the cross. I was talking to a woman some time ago who had suffered some troubles and trials from some poor choices she had made. She repented, and now she was ready to move on. There were consequences back here, but she was moving on. And I'd try to talk to her and say, do this. Stop. He wants to change your life. He doesn't want your life to go on like it was. What is he wanting to change in your life? Take your hands and open them up. He'll use that trial. He'll use those troubles in your life. What can you change in me? What can you grow in me? You know, I use Ted's dad as an illustration a lot my husband's father, but I have to because it is such a visual of this. When I, when I met Charlie, I don't think I knew anyone any more unhappy and lost and separated from the love of God than Charlie Kitchens. He was a mess. He sort of made it through life until he retired, and then he was more of a mess because he was alone, and he was a lonely man, and he was depressed, and he had no life direction, didn't know God, didn't want to know God. And then one day, because he was in this trial, and we weren't meeting his needs, all of a sudden he turned to his family and said, you know, take care of me, and he hadn't really built much of a relationship with us. A friend of ours took him to Mexico, and because of the pain in his heart, he began to notice the pain in other people's hearts. And he began to minister to the poor people in Mexico. And because of that, God opened his heart to the reality of who he was. And when he was in his 60s or 70s, he finally got it. After Ted talking to him for years, he finally understood what the love of God was about. And I can tell you, our final picture of his life, the last ten years of his life, besides the fact that he fed thousands of people in Mexico, lived among them, and did that, he ended up living back here because he broke his ankle. They had to take his leg from the knee down off, uh, amputate one of his legs. Now, the old Charlie would have put him over the edge. The new Charlie in Christ, that hard thing that happened that we all hated to watch happen, now he's in a wheelchair. He'd call us up all the time, bring me tapes, I'm sending the gospel message to Mexico. Bring me tapes. Now he's in a nursing home, having the time of his life in this one room nursing home, that's what he wanted to do, sending hundreds of tapes into Mexico that they brought into the schools that shared the life of Christ. And at the very end, when he couldn't even do that, he was in a wheelchair, he would have Ted come get him, and this is all he said all the time, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm looking in his room. And I'm looking at his leg, and I'm looking at the wheelchair, and he is going down the halls, passing out sheets that he would have our daughter Cassie make that said, Thank you, Jesus. And that was all 
That's all it said. That's all he wanted to tell people. You be thankful for Jesus in your life. We laugh about sometimes Ted would take him to Starbucks and have to push him around to people. And Charlie would say, thank you, thank you, Jesus. He had become a man who was prideful. He had become a man of humility and servanthood and obedience by the hard things that God had put in his life. I have noticed for me that I'm changing the way I pray when trials and troubles are in my life. I pray, God, teach me what it is I'm supposed to be learning. I pray, Lord, give me the strength to endure what it is that you're teaching me. And then I even think ahead and say, hey, prepare me for the future trials that are coming my way. I read this little poem, God is a zealous pruner, for he knows those who spare the knife will spoil the rose. God prunes us, prunes on our hearts so they're better hearts. Let's look at his life. We've looked at the cross. What about Jesus? Did he suffer on earth? And I think I wanted to look up, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 4, the very first time we see Jesus suffering. This is right after his baptism. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Okay, look at verse 1. First thing we notice. Who led him into the desert? The Holy Spirit. God led Jesus into the desert. But then we notice, did God tempt him? The devil tempted him. So we realize God uses even satanic tempting to accomplish his sovereign purposes. So if there's evil around you, you don't have to be overwhelmed by it. I take courage in this story because here's what I realize. On your outline, no evil done against us or planned against us can overcome the plans of God. And sometimes God pushes us into those trials, into those hard times. This is just one example of that. 
In this case, Jesus was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Satan's design was to get Jesus to violate the plan of God. That's his design for us. When we're in the middle of a trial, his design, our enemy's design, is to get us to violate the plans of God within that trial. And so Satan is offering Jesus the crown without the cross. That's his plan. It's not God's plan. What does Jesus do? What can we imitate? This is simple. This is huge. When we are wrestling in the wilderness with Satan and with his evil plans, we have to have the Word of God. That is how we defeat and resist our spiritual enemy. That is what Jesus did. We have to have our sword in the desert. We have to know the word of God. Jesus resisted Satan by contradicting the lies that Satan told. And he finally defeated him all together with God's word. And then we see how Satan departed and what happened immediately after that. God was there. God ministered to him. God was a part of that. But we can think to ourselves, well, what about Jesus' heart? He's God. He doesn't feel like we feel. He doesn't hurt like us. He doesn't know what my particular hurts inside my heart feel like. So I want us to look at some of those examples of Jesus' suffering on this earth. Look on your verse sheet at John 11. This is Lazarus' death. This was Jesus' very good friend. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. That's like the first verse I memorized. Jesus wept. Because it was easy. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So what was his sorrow? Jesus, the lover of our souls, looked around him at the evils that sin had brought into the world, and he saw weeping and darkness and death and hopelessness and fear, and his heart ached. Let's look at another example, how Jesus felt about Jerusalem. Matthew. Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And Luke. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus, the lover of our souls, looked around and saw the evils again that sin had brought into the world. And he saw the chosen children of God turning their back on the God who called them and loved them. He saw their hatred and their rejection. And his heart 
ached. Let's go to Gethsemane, Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And then he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, the lover of our souls, looked around and saw what sin had brought into this world. And then he looked at the cross and knew he was about to willingly get on it and pay for all of those sins. He knew what the physical pain would be, but he also knew what that pain would be for that moment to be separated from his eternal heavenly father that he had a perfect union with. And his heart ached. On your outline, our Savior can sympathize with our broken hearts. And sometimes we think to ourselves, but he can't understand how lonely I feel. Okay, we just read about 40 days and nights in the wilderness with Satan. That's not a happy time with a big group of people. He understood being alone when he was in Gethsemane, facing crucifixion. He begged his disciples to stay awake with him, but they didn't. They slept. They soon ran away from him as he was arrested and taken away. That's loneliness. What about this rejection I'm feeling? He can't understand that. Jesus went into his hometown of Nazareth where he had many friends and family. And they mocked him and they made fun of him and they rejected him. And it says in the Bible he could do very few miracles there. And he walked away from his hometown. He had so many more disciples follow him than just the 12 disciples. He had hundreds of other men that followed him that would slowly reject him even though he loved them and turn away and leave him never to come back. He endured the hatred from the Jewish leaders of the Jewish faith. When he was being led to the cross, one of his best friends, Peter, he heard him say, I don't know that guy. And he went on himself. He endured the insults and ridicule from the Roman guards and their beatings. When he was on the cross, where were his disciples? They weren't there. When he looked down, just John. And he also looked for his heavenly Father at the cross. And he wasn't there for the moment Christ took on our sins. And we might say, but you can't understand the fears that I feel. Have we ever feared to the point of sweating drops of blood? Luke tells us that in the garden, that is how severe his fear was. To sweat drops of blood as he faced the cruelness of the cross. The good thing about knowing that Jesus can identify with all these feelings we have in our hearts 
if he understands our hurting hearts, he can heal our hurting hearts in our temptations and in our sorrows. Look at Hebrews 4. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. Here's my favorite part. He is also interceding for us. He knows our hearts. He sympathizes with our hearts. He's interceding for us. He knows how to intercede for us. What about some of the words that Jesus spoke when he came in looking at our trials that we, are, uh, that we face in this life? I think about the poor disciples. They were afraid a lot. If you read some of their stories, you think, man, you guys were scared all the time. But that's how we would be. And, and they didn't understand who was with them at this point. They didn't understand the power and the love of Jesus. And so... Because they were fearful so often, the words that we read over and over again in the New Testament is Jesus just scratching his head, looking at them and saying, Where is your faith? Oh, you of little faith, where is your faith? To overcome the power of fear in our lives, we have to have faith in the power of God. That's how it's done. Jesus was teaching that a strong faith will overcome a strong fear. When the disciples thought that they were going to perish in the storm, you read that in your homework, while Jesus was sleeping in the boat, this was their cry. Don't you care that we're going to perish? But Jesus was with them. God was with them. And he replies, where's your faith? And he stilled the storm. Jesus came out another time to the boat, but he did that walking on the water. Peter thought that was pretty cool, wanted to try it. Jumps out of the boat, starts making his way to Jesus, starts noticing the waves are huge, and it's really dark, and he starts sinking because his eyes aren't on Jesus anymore. They're on these trials and troubles that are all around him. And he cries out to Jesus, Save me, Lord! And I love in the story because it says Jesus grabbed him and caught him and said his lines again, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus was with him. But then there was a woman who'd been suffering for 12 years. She had been bleeding for 12 years. She saw Jesus walking around in a crowd. And it says in the Bible that she thought in her heart, if I could only touch his robe, I could be healed. And so she reaches out and she touches the robe of Jesus, probably the back of him as he's walking past her. She touches it immediately. Jesus knows. And I love that he didn't just keep walking. He wanted to commend her great faith. 
And so he turns around and it says he looked her in the eyes and said, Woman, take heart. Your faith has made you well. From that moment, the Bible said she was healed. Where was her fear? Her fear had been overcome by her faith. That's the simple formula for overcoming fear, to deepen our faith and by simply reaching out to Jesus in the midst of our trials and troubles and our sufferings because he is there. Think he's asleep? He's there. We think he doesn't care? He's there. We reach out and touch in faith. So what will Jesus give us if we do that? If we're reaching out to him, what are his promises? And there's a lot of them, and it's exciting. I just am going to cover a few. First, I say Jesus is our generous provider. When Ted officiates funerals, um, the end of his message is my favorite part, because he always ends his messages the same way. And this is what he says. You know, you kind of go through, uh, he goes through the message, but we're sad. We're sad in the pews. And you know what lifts our hearts the most? He begins to list the promises of God as relates to death and heaven. And if you came in that funeral really burdened, you left really encouraged. Because he says, God promises this, and then he'd read the scripture. God promises that, and he'd read the scripture. I want to do that with us today. So if we came today with a heavy heart, we can grab onto these realities, the promises of Jesus. We reach out when we're touching the robe of Christ. These are the realities that can be ours. First of all, you have to just write these down because I don't uh, have it on your outline. Peace. He promises peace. If you don't mind, turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The customary goodbye for one Jewish person to say to another would be shalom. Shalom. That meant goodbye. Jesus is about to depart here depart this earth. He's about to ascend, and so he does the customary Jewish thing. Shalom to you, but did you notice what he says next? Shalom. Ah, my shalom. My shalom is different than any peace you think you're going to find on this earth. My shalom, my peace is enough for you to bear the hardships that are about to come, because you know I'm in control. Peace, I leave you. Courage. The next provision God leaves us with. Turn the page in your Bible to chapter 1633. Jesus says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We are to have courage because of that. One man wrote this, so I'll just read it. The fundamental ground 
for endurance and trials is the victory of Jesus over this world. While the world may continue to attack God's people, such attacks fall harmlessly, for Christ's victory has already accomplished a smashing defeat of the whole rebellious system. We have courage in that. Next, we have rest for our souls. Rest for our souls. I love that. Look on your verse sheet, Matthew 11. This is a verse in our breakfast room. I have a big painting of this, and it's got this verse on it, and I love to look at it every day. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In the context, this verse is about people who are refusing to let go of their sins. It's about people who are so caught up into legalism, they're thinking, I'm just going to get good enough for God. And Jesus is saying, come to me. Admit you need me. Lay your sins down. That's where you'll find rest. That's where I can forgive you. Go to him. Sometimes our trials are partly because of our sin. Jesus says, come to me. Confess that sin. Find rest for your souls. I am here. I will take your sins and I will forgive you. We can be forgiven and renewed. Okay, next he promises us presence. His presence. Matthew 28, on your verse sheet. Jesus says, Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. This was spoken to the disciples right when they were about to watch Jesus ascend into the heaven. This is a truth for us today, telling us we will never be alone. And I love this. The book of Matthew opens up saying um, that God is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And it ends by saying God with us. Emmanuel. Jesus is with us even if he's physically not here on earth right now. He's with us forever. We can feel his presence. And when it says, I'm with you even to the very end of the age, the end of the age is meaning when Jesus comes back to judge the earth and um, establish his kingdom. We are with him. Okay, privilege. Our next promise. Luke 12:32. You read this verse in your homework. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And what does that mean? This means this. He said this line after his list about worry. Why are you worrying about food and clothing? God has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He's saying, this world is not your home. You are the children of God. Think about that. Use that perspective when you go through life. That's what he wants us to do. He has given us that privilege, and if we have inherited that, we know he will meet our needs. When we have an eternal perspective, our anxieties can be released. God has plans for us. And finally, a future. God promises us a future. John 14, 
Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not true, I would have told you so. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That verse is so great. My favorite part is he says twice, I'm going so you can be with me. I'm coming to get you so you can be with me. That's his promise. We have a future. This verse is probably about the rapture. He's talking about before God returns for his final judgment, he is going to come and gather us up, gather his own, take us to heaven until he comes back to establish his kingdom with us. And we get to be with him. That's our future forever and ever. And guess what? All those provisions of God are tied up in a giant bow called compassion. The compassion of Christ is what gives us those gifts. Sometimes I wonder if we'll all be in heaven together, walking around and singing Amazing Grace, and we'll bump into each other and say, what were we so worried about? It'll just seem foolish when we're there. I wanted to close with uh, part of a hymn. Fanny Crosby, you all know her. She's a great hymn writer. She was blind. She was blind um, in the 19th century. Not a very easy time to be blind. And here's what she writes. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love, and he covers me there with his hand. He covers me there with his hand. So when clothed in his brightness, Transported I rise to meet him in clouds in the sky. His perfect salvation, his wonderful love, I'll shout with the millions on high. Let's face our storms with Jesus. Let's reach out for him, expecting his promises to be true. Let me pray. Lord, we give you all praise today. That nothing is wasted. That you take the senselessness out of suffering. We give you praise. Give us the strength to believe that and to walk in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.